All right. Not going to lie, I got a little excited about Vacation Bible School there. So, looking forward to that coming up. Uh, I want to take a second and talk a little bit about the schedule for the next few Sabbaths, because there's some uh, really interesting Sabbaths coming up and some interesting things going on. So, next Sabbath, in particular, you want to make sure you're here, because Pastor Jay is going to be back next Sabbath, and uh, the, uh, the King children are going to be baptized and he's going to be doing that and he's also going to give us our message next sabbath so that's going to be a very special day so you want to be here next sabbath for that and then on june 3rd uh, i'm going to be away because that turns out that's connect weekend at campion uh church or academy actually it's at the academy if those of you familiar with that at all it's it's sort of a version of a regional camp meeting, if you will, so where a lot of folks are invited to come to that, and you're certainly invited to be there for that. However, you probably won't want to miss what's going on here, because Mark Johnson is going to speak that day, and uh, you're not going to want to miss out on that, probably. So I will be away that Sabbath, but uh, things will go on here very well. Then on the 10th, June 10, it turns out, is actually one of the most important days of the entire year uh, because that's Alicia's birthday. So I know you're all going to want to note that and write that down. But uh, June 10, oh, Mark also. Yes, so, so it's doubly important. So June 10, uh, I will be here June 10, so I'll be speaking on June 10. But then on the 17th, uh, the the uh, Glacier View Ranch camp staff is getting geared up, and they're all going to come down and join us that day for our worship service. So we'll have <clears throat> about 65 extra folks that are participating at GVR this year coming down and being a part of our worship service that day. And Brandon Westgate is going to speak that day. So he's the director and the leader of the youth department at the conference. He'll be our speaker on the 17th. Then I'll be back on the 24th. And July 1, then I'll be gone on July 8, haven't finalized all the details about July 8, and I'll be back on the 15th. So that's just kind of a, a general idea. We've got a lot of different things going on this summer, and summer's always a, a fun and exciting time, but just I wanted to make you aware in general of that plan, but also specifically, make sure you're here next Sabbath to see Pastor Jay and... Uh, so a lot of fun things going on in the days ahead. All right. I think that was the only other thing I had. Okay. All right. Let's pray. Father in heaven, <clears throat> we ask that your spirit will be with us here today and that you will, uh, you will speak to us because I think there's a unique opportunity today in these words that you have for us if we're ready to receive it. Help us, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we've been focused here for a few weeks in the book of Luke, and we're kind of going slow here, walking along uh, section by section, and today we actually have a very short passage that is our key passage. However, we will grab some texts from some other places in the context of all of this, but Luke chapter 5, beginning in verse 12, is where we're going to be, but before we actually get to reading the text, I want to remind you of the theme that we are focusing on here in this series for a little while. And that is the question, do you know who Jesus is? 
And we could answer that question on a lot of different levels. Likely none of us would say no at every level, but likely none of us would say yes at every level either. For example, <clears throat> I've heard his name before. Well, that's going to be true for everybody here because I said Jesus a moment ago. So, so whether you had never heard his name before or not, which is unlikely that you would be here if you'd never heard the name Jesus, but, but that's a level and it's a reality within society and around the world there are people who've never heard the name Jesus. But that's likely not you. There's another level. I've read a gospel or two. Maybe you have at some point in your life read Matthew or John or, or something like that. And, and so you have some familiarity there. Or you could be in the group that says, I've heard a sermon or two about Jesus. There's another one, uh, another level. I can identify him in a painting. It's funny how how easy that actually is to do. I don't know, painters have, a, have an ability to, to draw your eye to the main character, whoever it is, and it seems like it doesn't really matter what he looks like. You can always tell, well, that, that must be Jesus there. He is the Messiah. That's a level that we arrive at, a level of understanding, but it's, it's an understanding that's tied to, to a historical interpretation and and the meaning of a word that isn't even an English word. It's a, a Hebrew word. He is the Son of God. Okay, that really requires quite a bit of a, a developed theology to begin to understand the concept of that because to call him the Son of God, you're also then going to need to look into, well, who is God and what is that reality? <clears throat> and they've actually through the generations been reams and reams of literature written about what exactly that relationship is and what it means. He is Savior. Oh, wow, okay. That statement itself implies a whole bunch of different things, doesn't it? The, you, you only need a Savior if you're in a situation where you're lost. So what does that even mean? He is friend. Well, there's a familiarity level there, but but how do you be friends with someone that, that you don't actually see in the way that, that I would look over there and see, see Matt or Laura, who were pleased that Laura was back today and participating in the music again. Glad that you had a good term with your, with your studies, your PhD studies. Friend, he is friend. He is Lord. Well, we know that's not really a word we use except in kind of a... a church context or then there's the then there's the crazy people right the ones who say oh yeah I know Jesus he talks to me well yeah I think that's kind of supposed to happen but then it's also we're kind of nervous about that what you perceive to be the truth about Jesus grows into what you believe about Jesus but the problem is our perceptions are always incomplete None of us has the full picture. We all have varying degrees of clarity, which means we all have varying perceptions about Jesus and who he is. And so I say it again, what do you believe about Jesus? I want to suggest to you that given this reality, we've all got to be very humble for our starting position. When it comes to the subject of Jesus, 
Yes, hopefully we have growing knowledge and understanding, but hopefully we also have humility that we can be prepared to be corrected in the points that we may not have it right. And then the second point here is, am I actually willing to accept Jesus for who he is rather than for what my expectations demand him to be? If you'll remember, we started this reflection, this series, if you will, with the story of Jesus coming to his hometown in Nazareth and talking to the people there. And when it starts out, they're really excited. They're like, wow, this is amazing. He, he could be the Messiah. He could be the one. And they began to pile on him their expectations as to what the Messiah was going to come and do. The Messiah was going to come and liberate us from the yoke of the Gentiles. But as Jesus went on and talked more and more, it started to sound like maybe he wasn't going to lead an army and take over Jerusalem and from there conquer the whole world. In fact, it began to look as though possibly Jesus was going to have mercy on the Gentiles. And as this discussion goes on and they become more and more uncomfortable with what Jesus is saying, the people of Nazareth do a rather remarkable thing. As you recall, they take Jesus to the edge of a cliff and are prepared to throw him off because he's just not fulfilling their expectations. You see, our, our perceptions lead to assumptions and our assumptions lead us to detailed expectations. And while expectations can bring us hope, they also sometimes blind our eyes when a reality about Jesus and our expectations of Jesus don't match up. So I think it's worthwhile for us from time to time to reflect on where did I get my expectations about Jesus? A lot of people get their expectations about Jesus from church. And that's appropriate because the reality about Christianity is if, if the previous generation doesn't pass it on to a new generation, then the faith dies out. It is a, it is a faith that is based on testimony from one person to another. And then that testimony is affirmed by the Holy Spirit. So there is a process here of passing the faith on generation to generation. But there is also a potential flaw in that because since none of us has the perfect picture, no one passes a perfect picture along. And since none of us hear exactly right what is being said, problems can come. We can have misunderstandings. Churches can pass into long periods of time where there, is a, there, are, there are deep flaws in their understanding. So where do we get our expectations about Jesus? Sometimes they come from different elements of our society. They can come from, from, uh, from conservative evangelical perceptions of reality. And, and there can be some real strength there, but there can be some, some problems there as well, especially when it starts to mix in, in politics. Sometimes we get our perceptions about Jesus from society at large. Society loves to have an approach to Jesus. Generally, it's, a, it's an approach that very much centers in Jesus allowing everything and being against nothing. 
There are liberal Christian views of Jesus and what he did and what his role was. But the thing about all of these, we have to be careful everywhere because there are traps in all of them because each of these different groups in their attempts to assert their understandings on reality have sought at different times to hijack Jesus for their own cause. Just like the people of Nazareth wanted Jesus to lead an army to destroy the Romans. There are people today who want Jesus to do what they want him to do. And they want you to believe in the Jesus that they believe in. Or at least that they perceive. They were happy with Jesus for a while. But he lost them when it became clear his agenda was not necessarily theirs. And the people of Nazareth decided it might be better to throw him over the cliff than let him keep doing this. Have you ever reached that moment in your life where you thought about throwing Jesus over the cliff? Because he just wasn't doing it right? So what do you believe about Jesus? Is he a savior? Do you even think you need one? Is he a teacher? Well, if he is, do you learn from him? Is he Lord? Well, that, that means if you're calling him Lord, that means that you're committing yourself to do what he says. Is he king? We don't even really understand king. I mean, like what? King Charles? What even is that? Is he a friend? And in what way is he a friend? We're trying to figure our way through these things, but, but, but unfortunately, rather than giving you great answers today, I'm actually going to introduce a couple more questions to throw on top of it. And here we go. Do all the rules that we as humans, and particularly we as religious humans, do all the rules that we as humans agree on, or maybe disagree on, but let's go with agree on, do all the rules that we as humans agree on apply to Jesus? You see, whether we realize it or not, we function within a context of a set of rules. And that's absolutely essential for us to function in community. You can't have culture, you can't have community, you can't have any of those things without a certain set of assumed rules. Now, sometimes we get specific with the rules if there's a need to define them, but way more than that, we function with a background set of rules that allows us to come into a space like this, function within this environment, and, and have it all work out in a reasonable way. But the question I'm asking you is, these rules we make for ourselves, do they apply to Jesus? And let's add another level to that, all of these rules we make. What if the rules we've made we believe actually came from God himself. If we believe the rules that we live by came from God himself, wouldn't it be natural for us to expect Jesus to have to abide by those rules? However, if the rules do apply to Jesus, what does that say about rules? Are rules greater than Jesus? Or if the rules don't apply, what does that say about rules in general? Can any of us ignore them whenever we want? We're in Luke again today, and we're looking at a very short passage 
with what at the time had to be a shocking event in so many ways. And it's all related to these rules and these questions. Luke chapter 5, verse 12. While Jesus was in one of the cities, there came a man full of leprosy. And when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and begged him, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. All right, so now it's not, it's not perfectly clear what the man's ailment was. For in that time, there were a lot of different skin-based conditions that fell under the category of leprosy. There is one thing that is clear, and that is that it was not appropriate for the man to be approaching anyone, much less Jesus. You see, there were rules for leprosy. If you go to Leviticus chapter 13, Leviticus chapter 13, beginning in verse 45, we read these words, the leprous person who has the disease shall wear torn clothes and let the hair of his head hang loose and he shall cover his upper lip, so he's covering his mouth, and cry out, unclean, unclean. He shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease. He is unclean. He shall live alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp. So these were the rules in the Bible, if you will. I didn't call it that at that point. But, but in Scripture, in the writings of Moses, that even, even the Pharisees and the Sadducees could agree these writings mattered. These were the rules for a person with leprosy. But it actually went beyond this. Because this, this condition called leprosy became very much directly attributed to a curse and a result of bad behavior. And this wasn't just attributed out of the blue. It was attributed that way in the Bible story itself. Numbers chapter 12. Numbers chapter 12. Beginning in verse 1, Miriam and Aaron, that's the brother and sister of Moses, spoke against Moses because of the Cushite woman whom Moses had married, for he had married a Cushite woman. Now the story goes on, and there's details there, and their, their specific complaint takes the form of, does God only speak through Moses? Does he not speak through us? And then verse 5 says, And the Lord came down in a pillar of cloud, and stood at the entrance of the tent, and called Aaron and Miriam, and they both came forward, and then skipping to verse 9, after he says some things, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against them, and he departed. When the cloud removed from over the tent, behold, Miriam was leprous like snow. And Aaron turned towards Miriam, and behold, she was leprous. And Aaron said to Moses, Oh, my Lord, do not punish us, because we have done foolishly and have sinned. Let her not be as one dead whose flesh is half eaten away when he comes out of his mother's womb. And Moses cried to the Lord, Oh God, please heal her, please. But the Lord said to Moses, If her father had but spit in her face, should she not be shamed seven days? Let her be shut outside the camp seven days, and after that she may be brought in again. So Miriam was shut outside the camp seven days, and the people did not set out on the march till Miriam was brought in again. Wow, there's plenty there to be uncomfortable with, isn't there? So let's just move on. How about that? 
You see, we're not going to solve that. We're not going to unpack that. But we are going to see very clearly this is an example in Scripture where leprosy is associated with a curse for bad behavior. And the effect of it is you're supposed to be shunned. You see that, right? This is the context they're working from. 2 Kings chapter 5 tells another story, the story of Naaman, the Syrian, who has leprosy, who has a servant girl from Israel, who says, there's a prophet in Israel, go, and you will be healed. But, but when Elisha sends Naaman away after he's healed and refuses to accept Naaman's gifts, Elisha's servant Gehazi decides, wait a minute, this is a big time missed opportunity for gain. And he goes after Naaman with a story. But when he comes back, Elisha's not pleased. So 2 Kings chapter 5, verse 25, Gehazi went in and stood before his master. And Elisha said to him, where have you been, Gehazi? And he said, your servant went nowhere. Never a good idea to lie to a prophet. Verse 26, but he said to him, did not my heart go when the man turned from his chariot to meet you? Was it a time to accept money and garments, olive orchards and vineyards, sheep and oxen, male servants and female servants? Therefore the leprosy of Naaman shall cling to you and to your descendants forever. So he went out from his presence a leper like snow. So again, we have a Bible story where leprosy comes as a condition of a curse due to sin and bad behavior. There's actually an event that takes place between these two. It's earlier when David is, is trying to bring the kingdom together and Joab, David's general, kills Abner, who was Saul's general and the general of the armies of Israel. After this takes place, this is what David says. 2 Samuel chapter 3, verse 28. Afterward, when David heard about it, he said, I and my kingdom are forever guiltless before the Lord for the blood of Abner, the son of Ner. May it fall on the head of Joab and upon all his father's house, and may the house of Joab never be without one who has a discharge or who is leprous or who holds a spindle or who falls by the sword or who lacks bread. That's a pretty ugly curse, isn't it? So you can see well enough just from these examples that everyone, the disciples included, everyone who had biblical knowledge, what we would call biblical knowledge, knowledge of Scripture, had a fantastic biblical basis for assuming anyone with leprosy had it because they'd been evil. You see that, right? This is a curse. And even the rules for the one with leprosy suggested that that person deserved to be miserable. Leviticus 13, verse 45. The leprous one shall wear torn clothes and let the hair of his head hang loose and he shall cover his upper lip and cry out, unclean, unclean. Now we live in a different time. We live in a different reality. And we would approach this whole subject from our medical slash scientific perspective. And in that context, we would see wisdom in the admonition to isolate anyone with a contagious condition. But we would likely not 
affiliate that condition with a curse or with evil doing. So we would come at this differently. The question is, are we right? Or were they right? It's kind of ironic in a way when it comes to the whole subject of hygiene that we are in practice in at least one way more in line with the Pharisees than we are with the disciples. There's a story in Matthew 15, verse 1. It says, Then the Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. Okay, we'd be with the Pharisees on that one. We're like, yeah, yeah, why do you do that? Now, what's being referred to actually has to do with ceremonial washing and and ceremonial uncleanness. But likely the rule that the Pharisees were following came originally from something the Lord taught them for the purpose of keeping them from infecting themselves when they ate. And because there was no way to explain germs to them, God probably put it in a context of holiness and cleanness and uncleanness. So you see the Lord trying to work with us, trying to bring us along, trying to keep us from harming ourselves. But how do you do that to a people that have an incomplete understanding? And when I say that, realize that's us. As smart as we think we are, we have an incomplete understanding. And God is forever trying to work with us for our good. But how do you do it? And how do we not turn what God tries to do for our good in one generation into a ridiculous rule in the next? It's hard to know. It's hard to understand. Clearly, the people's perceptions of leprosy came from the stories from before. Were they right or were they wrong? Well, let's go back to our original story. Luke 5, verse 12. While Jesus was in one of the cities, there came a man full of leprosy. And when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and begged him, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him saying i will be clean and immediately the leprosy left him okay there is so much here that's not supposed to happen first of all the boldness of the leprous man to come to jesus why did he think he could be healed you remember what i said your perceptions about jesus will lead ultimately to your beliefs and your expectations. Where in the world did this leprous man, who is supposed to perceive his disease as a curse he deserves, get it in his mind that he could come to Jesus and be healed? Somewhere, he got hope in his heart. Somehow, in what he saw in Jesus, he was able to come, overcome whatever stockpile negativity he had in himself and whatever had been poured on him, whatever derision he had received, he was able to overcome it all and believe Jesus could heal even a leper. 
It's an example of how what you believe about Jesus will significantly, if not radically, affect your behavior. But now let's go the next step of what shouldn't have happened. He, should, he shouldn't have gotten to the point where he believed that, but somehow he did. But let's go to the next step of what shouldn't happen. Jesus should not have engaged him at all. If Jesus was playing by the rules, he would have stayed away from the man. Because the man was unclean. But he doesn't shy away from the man. He engages him. And in fact, he goes the step further of literally touching him. Did Jesus have to touch someone to heal them? No. He doesn't have to do this. So we have to discern from that there is a specific purpose a specific thing Jesus is teaching us in these actions by literally touching the unclean man. Because what happens to you when you touch an unclean person? You become unclean. There's so much here that's not supposed to happen. But when Jesus touches the man... Instead of Jesus becoming defiled, the man becomes clean. That's not how it's supposed to work. But let's finish the story. Verse 14. And he charged him to tell no one, but go and show yourself to the priest and make an offering for your cleansing as Moses commanded for a proof to them. But now even more, the report about him went abroad and great crowds gathered to hear him. People began to believe new things, some of them really good, some of them maybe not so good. They gathered to hear him and be healed of their affirmities, but he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. Another interesting time here in this story, you remember in the previous chapter, the, the demons are crying out, I know who you are, and Jesus says, don't talk. Now again, Jesus heals a leprous man and says, don't talk, don't tell anybody. But the news is getting out anyway, and, and the expectations are growing. Some, some, like I said, for the right reasons, some maybe not so much. But, but let's, let's step back and reflect on what has happened here. Jesus has broken the very clear rule with an absolute biblical basis by touching a man with leprosy. Jesus broke the rule. Therefore, according to the rule, Jesus should now be unclean until he goes through the ceremonial washing and waits until evening. If you want details on that, you can read Leviticus 15 for yourself. But here's the deal. It seems that the rules don't apply to Jesus. Though interestingly... Jesus suggests that the rules still apply to the man. Did you notice that? Verse 14, And Jesus charged him to tell no one, but go and show yourself to the priest and make an offering for your cleansing as Moses commanded for a proof to them. See, that was the rule. You had to go to the priest and be shown to be no longer with leprosy and make a sacrifice. So even though the rule didn't apply to Jesus, he's still saying, yeah, but the rule still applies to you. Go and do it. 
So what's going on here? And how should this impact the way we see Jesus and the way we approach the idea of defilement and perhaps even the way we look at evil? Maybe let's pose the question this way. What is stronger, purity or defilement? It's an interesting question to reflect on, isn't it? Because in our case, typically defilement destroys purity, right? If I had up here a glass of water, perfectly clean water, ready for drinking, but I took just a little bit of dirt and put it in the water and then stirred it up, what would happen? The water would get cloudy, wouldn't it? And it would be almost impossible for me to get the dirt back out. So in that example, defilement very easily corrupts purity. Another example, I can, I can rub my nose with clean hands without much risk. If I've got a rhinovirus on my hand, I may not know it, but I might just give myself a cold. Defilement corrupts purity in this case. Or another example, you've got a group of people who have a, a, a nice loving relationship and then that group gets infiltrated by a hurtful person. And before long the wonderful relationships going on become frayed. You ever seen that happen? In general, it would seem that with us, defilement is more powerful than purity. We don't generally need to protect defilement from being destroyed by purity. But we seem to always need to guard purity. Yet with Jesus, the rules seem to be a little bit different. Or, or maybe the rules don't apply what does that tell us about Jesus? And what does that tell us about the rules? And what effect should a church have on a community? And vice versa, what effect should a community have on a church? So a church exists in a community, and the community is the people that live around it, and, and maybe the people that live around it are corrupt or unbelieving. Should the church be constantly fearful and guarding its edges so that nothing defiling comes in and disrupts it? Or should the community be worried about the church because the purity of the church is about to overwhelm the whole of them? What is it? How should it be? What is stronger? Does an outsider coming into the community defile the community? Or does the community purify the outsider? Paul actually has kind of an interesting take on this. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 12. To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. 
otherwise your children would be unclean. But as it is, they are holy. That whole argument is bizarre to us. But yet he seems to be making the argument here that in this case, the purity of the one overcomes the defilement of the other. But Paul also says this, same book, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, just a little bit earlier. Verse 6, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? He's talking about yeast here. A little bit gets into it, and before long, the whole thing. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of the world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. So on the one hand, he's saying, no, 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 it's all good. On the other hand, he's saying, wow, watch out. He's kind of saying both things here, isn't he? Watch out for defilement. It will destroy purity. Don't worry about that. It'll be okay. There are lots of levels on which we as believers in this generation and everyone in all the generations before us have to make decisions. And each generation will generate its rules. And sometimes the rules will serve us well and sometimes the rules will become the problem. I'm going to guarantee you one thing today. We're not going to solve that. We're going to do it because we can't help it. But we're not going to solve the challenge. Some of the rules we make are going to be great. Some of the rules we make are going to be dumb. We're not going to solve it. But maybe we could end it with a few principles we could hold on to. I'm going to invite the band to come back up here because we're going to do some songs here in a second. But here maybe are some principles we can hang on to in the context of this whole reality. First of all, purity is a real thing and it must be protected. Purity is a real thing and it must be protected. Second, Defilement is a real thing, and it must be avoided. Third, very often our purity is at risk of becoming defiled. But that does not mean we should close down and become suspicious of everything and everyone. You cannot reach purity through rule multiplication. It doesn't work that way. Sometimes, purity will overcome defilement. At least our purity. But here's the one to really hang on to. Jesus' purity will always overcome defilement. 
I think it's fair to discern from the passage today that after Jesus, things are different. You have all this Old Testament stuff and the rules about lepers and all of those other things, and, and they developed and they had theories and they came up with reasons and explanations, and some of them are right and some of them are really wrong. But just know that after Jesus, things are different. And believers today who are filled with the Holy Spirit must see it as part of their calling to boldly engage defilement in its many forms in the name of Jesus. Beyond that, let's end with this thought. There is no defilement that Jesus cannot cleanse. No defilement in the world. No defilement in you. No defilement in me. So the question, do you need to be cleansed today? Are you the leprous man? Have you had shame heaped on you to make you believe you are unworthy to even come into the presence of Jesus? Because that was the reality for the man with leprosy. He should have never been there. But because he believed in his mind, Jesus could do it. He put himself in front of Jesus and said, If you will, you can make me clean. And the same is true for you. Jesus can make you clean. Now that's not to say there might not still be need to deal with the implications of what has been, what has been done. As Jesus said to the man, go show yourself to the priest. You still need to follow through here. But you can be made clean. So we're about to sing three songs. And in these three songs are the experience that if you need to be cleansed, you can go through today. And as you sing these songs, I hope you will have this experience in your heart. The first song is an invitation to come to Jesus in your leprous reality, in the reality of your uncleanness. Be like the man who believed in his mind Jesus could do it and just come to him anyway even though you know all the reasons you shouldn't. That's the first song. The second one is about receiving the healing and the cleansing. And then the third one is a twist on our story. Because you know, our story ended with Jesus saying to the man, okay, but don't tell anybody what happened. But you see, things are different now. Jesus has carried out his mission. He has done what he came to do. He has died and risen again, and he stands forever as our intercessor with the Lord. And he says, go and tell. So come to Jesus as you are. Receive your healing and cleansing. And then when you're done here, go into the world sent by your healer, this time told, tell your story to anyone who will hear it.
That's how we'll close today. You need to be cleansed. Jesus says, come as you are. Be cleansed.